Hey, welcome to another episode of More Than Bread. We are nearing the end of this series on Paul's letters from prison. This one and one, I don't know, maybe two more and we're done. So what's next? Well, if I can get in two more after this, I'll hit my goal of 250 episodes before break. I'm not very legalistic when it comes to goals, so we'll see. And like I said in the last episode, I'm pondering a more than bread series for Lent. Got really good responses to the Advent series, so I thought, what the what the heck, we'll try it out and see what happens. Because after all, whoever heard of giving up bread for Lent? More than bread, right? I've never done a Lent series, so I have to ponder it a bit more and how I would lay it out and stuff like that, but, but that's where I'm leaning. So if I do that, I'll finish Paul's letters from prison, and then take a break till the start of Lent, which this year is Wednesday, February 14th, which, oh my goodness, just hit me. Is that right? Do, do Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day land on the same day this year? My goodness, there are all sorts of ironies interwoven in that coincidence, aren't there? Stay tuned. So in the last episode, number 247, we started in on Philemon. And to give Philemon some context, I, I thought it'd be good to take a look at some of what the Bible says about slavery. That's really the context of Philemon. And and in a sense, when we're looking at what the Bible says, we're really asking the question, what does God think about slavery? What's on God's heart when it comes to slavery? Let, let me ask that question this way. What is your name for God. Well, that's kind of a funny question to ask, isn't it? Like, what do you mean, Dan? Like a nickname, like Big Daddy in the Sky? No, that's not what I'm talking about. You may not be aware of this, but in the Old Testament, the one true name of God, sometimes pronounced Jehovah or Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, the one true name of God was too holy for people to speak out loud. But even though they would not say the one true name of God, they did call him by other names. And they usually gave God a name when they had this intense, very real encounter with God. Or they'd give him a name that described how he was at work in their lives. For example, the all-sufficient God, the God who heals, the God who provides, God Almighty, the Lord of heaven's armies, the God who provides. Those are some of the favorite names of God. I grew up on a farm in South Dakota. One of our favorite names for God was the Lord of the Harvest. What's your name for God? Now, certainly if you ask the first people of God, the Israelites, one of their most important names of God, the first one they, they really came to experience was Jehovah Mephtali, the Lord my deliverer. In Exodus 6, God said to Moses, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with my outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And again, in Exodus 20, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is how God came to be known by his people from the very beginning, the deliverer. So that context is important for all of Scripture. Every word that we read, every word that comes from the mouth of God comes from the mouth of the Deliverer. So that context is, is vital for all of Scripture, including Philemon. So keep that name in mind. It would have been a name of God that both Philemon and Paul were aware of. So keep that in mind as I read again the book of Philemon. I'm reading from the New International Version. Here's what Paul writes. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. I love, these are my words, I love how Paul begins, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not a prisoner of Rome, 
a prisoner of Christ Jesus, from Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. That's the church of Colossians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, Paul writes, because I hear about your love for all his holy people, for all his holy people. And remember my words, but remember that that this slave man was introduced in Colossians as one of you, <laughs> one of you, all his holy people. I I hear about all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And I pray that your partnership, verse 6, with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, but no longer as a slave, better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. (laughs) Not to mention that you owe me your very self. (laughs) I love how Paul gets those things in. Verse 20, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, like I said in the last episode, Google the question, does the Bible condone slavery? And you'll run into articles that basically start with, of course it does, and articles that start with, of course it does not. And and it's unwise to sweep quickly past the history of the American church in this arena. The church has an imperfect past at best when it comes to slavery. But it's still fair to ask the question, what's on God's heart? You know, even slave masters... Back in the time of the Civil War, they they recognized the push of the Bible toward deliverance from slavery. If you go to the Museum of the Bible, you'll see the Slave Bible, and it's a Bible with large sections of the Old and New Testament cut out because proponents of slavery thought those sections would encourage slaves toward freedom. D.A. Carson says that the best work on slavery is by an African-American scholar named Thomas Sowell. He has written a huge three-volume edition. And and in the book, he, he points out that slavery was a global phenomenon. It was universal. 
the European slave trade trafficked 11 million Africans, and twice that many were bought and sold on the Arabian Peninsula during the same time period. And almost every slave sold in the European slave trade was sold by other Africans. Soul writes, although slavery was a worldwide institution for thousands of years, nowhere in the world was slavery a controversial issue prior to the 18th century. People of every race and color were enslaved and enslaved others. White people were still being bought and sold as slaves in the Ottoman Empire decades after American blacks were freed. Everyone, he writes, hated the idea of being a slave, but few had any qualms about enslaving others. Slavery was was just not an issue, not even among intellectuals, much less among political leaders, until the 18th century. And then it was an issue only in Western civilization. He said, this was fascinating. He said, you could research all of the 18th century Africa or Asia or the Middle East without finding any comparable rejection of slavery there as it was beginning to be rejected in, in the West. And he asked the question, why? Here's the whole point. What stopped slavery in the West? His answer, undeniably, the Great Awakening. The preaching of men like John Wesley and the reforms of Christian statements, William Wilberforce, in the midst of the Great Awakening. (laughs) Remember in the last episode, J.D. Greer suggested that rather than issuing a political manifesto, God planted seeds which would undo the immoral structure of slavery. I I love that that metaphor, that picture. Had God said this system is wrong, get rid of it now, Jesus' followers may have focused exclusively on political action. And there's a time to work politically. I understand that. But God had a different way of going about his agenda on earth. He was transforming the world from within. And the place that he started was in the church. The words of God were seeds, the words of God planted seeds that ultimately undid the broken systems of the world from within. Yeah, yes, 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 with with groans. I, I I recognize, I admit the church has been hypocritically immoral down through history in this area. But when we really reckon with the gospel, like in the Great Awakening, when we really listen to the words of God and allow them to be planted like seeds by the Spirit of God in our hearts, change happens, deliverance happens. Uh, let me share one more story. This is important context to the book of Philemon. And 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 I also felt like it's it's important because at least as I'm recording this, it's Black History Month. And and so it it's okay for us to spend another episode on this issue. You likely know the name Martin Luther King. He was a key leader of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. And if you know his story, you know that his passion for deliverance had a basis, a conviction from the words of God. As the son of a Baptist minister, he followed in his father's pastoral footsteps. And at the young age of 25, he was called to pastor Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. As a young pastor in 1956, King was called by other older pastors in the black community to lead the Montgomery bus boycott, which which at that time was deemed a suicide mission. I mean, the opposition was significant. One night in 1956, King was at his church leading a, a rally that was punctuated by prayer for this movement, this, this bus boycott movement in Montgomery. And suddenly someone burst through the doors of the church and said that the house where his wife and infant daughter were had been firebombed. 
Immediately, King and the rest of the congregation rushed down the street to the house, and and to his relief, they discovered that his wife and daughter had managed to escape. But after he discovered they were unharmed, he realized that another danger was stirring. Around his burning house, a group of angry black citizens had gathered with bats and guns and other weapons. And, and King just knew. He knew that if this mob began driving through the streets, many would die. Many would die that night. So King did something utterly remarkable. He stepped onto his front porch, which was still in flames, and he addressed the enraged crowd with these words, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. I want you to love your enemies, be good to them, love them, and let them know that you love them. We're doing what is right, we are doing what is just, and God is with us. And wonder upon wonders, or or maybe no wonder at all, because of the power of the word of God combined by the spirit of God, But when the crowd heard those words, they dropped their weapons, they gathered together in his yard and began to sing the hymn, Amazing Grace. Many historians identify this moment as one of the most significant turning points of the civil rights movement. But something deeper happened in King's heart before this incredible moment that served as as a turning point for a movement. Three nights prior, King had a profound encounter with the presence of God. It was January 27, 1956. King woke up in the middle of the night by a phone call. An angry voice essentially said that if he and his family were not out of town in three days, they were all going to die. Now, for a black minister in Montgomery, Alabama, leading a bus boycott in 1956, that was not an idle threat. King hung up the phone, but he couldn't get back to sleep. He poured himself a cup of coffee in his kitchen, sat down at the table, and buried his face in his hands. In his own words, he said he was paralyzed by fear. All he could think about was how he was going to get himself and his family out of town without losing the respect of all the other black ministers. And yet, as he was paralyzed by fear, he began praying over his cup of coffee. And suddenly, King said, I heard another voice, not not on the telephone, but this inner voice that whispered to him, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. Later on, King recounted this event in a sermon. He said that he, God, promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And if you don't recognize those words, they're words that come from the mouth of God, seeds that had been planted from Scripture that transformed King and then transformed a movement that brought profound change to our world. When King encountered Christ in his kitchen, it it transformed his vision of the world. It set him free from fear, and, and that's when his world changed. And listen, I can't change the world. You can't change the world. We can't change the world if our world, the world of me, the interior world doesn't change first. Those turning points often result from an inward transformation in someone who encounters Jesus. I don't know. A lot of times it seems like the spiritual life of King doesn't get top press. And he had his imperfections, as we all do. But but it really, the, the, the life of King, the spiritual life of King has been recognized as one of his most innovative contribution to the civil rights movement. One historian highlights King's message from jail in 1962, a letter that, unlike his Birmingham letter from jail, has gone almost unnoticed. 
In that letter, King writes of prayer marches and prayer vigils and prayer rallies and, and pilgrimages of prayer. Perhaps like Epaphras and Paul, King knew what it was to wrestle in prayer. And perhaps the words of God in a life of prayer, breathing in and breathing out, led King to say things like, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. One time he said, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all, but whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possessed. Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree Love, he said, is the most durable power in the world. This creative force, so beautifully exemplified in the life of our Christ, is the most potent instrument available in mankind's quest for peace and security. And you've heard this one. These are words shaped by the words that come from the mouth of God. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus. Perhaps the reason he was separated, and and you can probably read there, perhaps the reason he ran away from you, God allowed him to run away from you for a little while, was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Oh, my Jesus, if if we can just continue to see each other as brothers, brothers in the Lord, brothers and sisters in the Lord, part of the same family, adopted into the family of God, loved by Jesus, <laughs> honestly, we could change the world. Let me pray for you. Father, I, I pray that each and every person listening would, would know that if, if they name the name of Christ, if if Christ has delivered them from their sins, if they've called upon the name of the Lord, that that we are brothers, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, adopted into the family of God by by the love of Jesus poured out on the cross of Christ. God, I, I pray that we would see the people around us, even our enemies, that we would see even our enemies as as brothers, as as people whom you love and you died for. God, I, I pray that the light of Christ would drive out the darkness of our world. The love of Jesus would drive out the hate. God, I'm so grateful for people like Martin Luther King and and Harriet Tubman and and all the people down through the years who have have given their lives to lift up those who who are oppressed, imprisoned, who, who need deliverance. God, I I pray that you would continue to give us a bold courage to do that for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.